Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Local County NFU chairman was so incensed with my book that uh, he wrote to the local paper and said, I must be going about with my eyes shut. He said, people travel through Somerset on the train, they look out of the window and they see this wonderful, verdant county and uh, I must be talking absolute nonsense, absolutely nothing wrong with it. And people, people love the countryside and look and think it's wonderful. And it does in many ways. But I feel what people are seeing when they look out of the train going through Somerset any, anyway is perhaps a landscape. And certainly it's an attractive landscape. But there are lots of attractive landscapes and some of them are in the National Gallery. And there don't have a lot of life about them, not, not in the organic sense. They obviously have an abstract life, but in a sense they're just sort of dead materials there, sort of dead wood and canvas and some mineral, some paint. What I'm talking about is the life of the countryside, or what I hope to talk about is the life of the countryside. Uh, from the farming establishments, really, like our local NFU chairman who wrote the local paper, there's really nothing wrong with the countryside. And I must say, I've been, uh, although what the book I've written is um, quite a, a hard-hitting criticism, I suppose, of a lot of aspects of modern agriculture, I hadn't quite expected the flack that I would get from the farming establishment. Um, I mean, notably, the correspondent in Farming News who wrote his regular column under the headline, uh, the biggest load of rubbish it has ever been my misfortune to read. And he sort of went downhill from that. Uh, he said it was sad that someone who was once a credible agricultural journalist, well, he's never said that to me before, should have descended to publishing such blatantly emotional claptrap. And he also said he'd have to be a, a, a masochist to want to read this book. And then he went to the Telegraph and um, said I ought to be sacked from my part-time advisory job on the Archers because of my extreme views. Well, I have to say my views didn't seem all that extreme to me. I mean, I was uh, criticising production subsidies in farming, which actually I maybe you don't know, but that was the policy of the, the last government, John Major's government, to um, phase out production subsidies in farming. So I feel like, and I actually voted Liberal Democrat last time, so I didn't feel my views were that extreme. However, um, I feel it's a case in a sense that I'm looked on as, as the, the poacher turned gamekeeper, or maybe within the agriculture establishment as the gamekeeper turned turn poacher. In fact, uh, I've had sort of views about things were wrong with farming for, for a long time. And um, I've been writing about agriculture since I joined Farmers Weekly back in the early 70s. And I don't come from a farming background. I, I come from Reading, actually. But I decided that agriculture was a good thing to do. It was a good sort of outdoor thing to do. So I went and worked on farms. Then I went and did a, uh, became a student at Bangor doing agriculture and worked on more farms. Then when I left there, I spent some time working as a stockman on a farm in Dorset. And then, as I say, in the early 70s, I went uh, working on Farmers Weekly. And it was just about the time that Britain was going in the EC and we had the CAP and so on. And it became, I don't know whether I went into agriculture with a fairly idealistic view of it. Maybe I did. And obviously I realised farming is about making money. You have to make a profit, obviously. Or you, but it seemed to me that it was about other things as well, and that's really what made farming a special activity. It was to do with you know, producing good food and also to do with husbanding natural resources for the, for the rest of us, for the community. And it, it's, it seems to me increasingly over the years that I've sort of written or looked at agriculture that it's become preoccupied with business efficiency, if you like, and, and these other aspects to do with the food, the quality of the food, and the way it husbands natural resources become secondary. Now, I'm not, I'm, I'm not blaming solely farmers for this. And I mean, we as a community put all kinds of pressures, and we give them all kinds of price signals, and we eat the kinds of food that make them go out and, and produce raw materials instead of what we think of a whole foods. But it seemed to me, and I certainly wouldn't level this criticism at all farmers, obviously there are many farmers who are doing a wonderful job producing good food. I visited one this morning, not 
five miles away from here. It's a wonderful farm, not organic, but just doing a very good job environmentally and in terms of producing food. But this mainstream agriculture, the kind of agriculture that produces most of the food in this country, is increasingly getting onto uh, a sort of corporate structure. It's enlarging its production base. It's looking to world markets. It's looking to get out and compete with Calgary and the Canadian prairies and sell wheat as cheaply as they do onto world markets. And it's looking at a global food economy. And I, I tremble for what this may do to the quality of our landscape if we continue down that way. So I just would really like to just um, raise a couple of points about what's happening in the countryside, maybe at a micro level, that the kind of thing that you don't, look, you don't see as you go through it on the train or you look at it from the car window. Two years ago, um, at the Royal Welsh Show, the RSPB, the Royal Society of Protection of Birds, launched a report on the status of farmland birds in Wales. It was called uh, Silent Fields, or in Welsh, Glad Tawel. And forgive my uh, false pronunciation, the Welsh speakers amongst you. It came as something of a shock to the, the great and the good of Welsh agriculture, like the thousands of the rest of us who come to the Welsh uplands and tourists. We, we always assume that the Welsh hills were unpolluted, untarnished, not subject to the kind of greedy excesses that we'd read about in the eastern counties of England. But the report, this report from the RSPB painted a ra rather dented that comfortable fantasy we had. Rather than painting the expected picture of a, of a haven of wildlife, it read more like a, a catalogue of loss and decay. And it showed that real damage was being done to wildlife, Welsh wildlife, almost unnoticed. Um, birds were the kind of the main indicators. The lapwing, which used to be abundant in pretty well every Welsh county at the beginning of the century, is now in danger of extinct, extinction almost everywhere in Wales, except for a few nature reserves. The golden plover, uh, another bird, very striking bird with sort of golden brown upper parts, used to breed on the high moorlands from Snowdonia all the way down to the Welsh mountain, the Black Mountains. Now it's a rarity. The curlew, with its distinctive call, ground nesting bird used to be common throughout Wales. This report showed that there were now just six pairs in the whole of the Priscilla Mountains, and that fewer than 20 pairs, in, there were fewer than 20 pairs in the entire county of Gwent. I could go on as the linnet that used to nest in large numbers and gorse breaks. Now it's combined to a, a narrow strip of rough, rough vegetation at cliff tops on the coast. Red grouse, black grouse, yellow wagtail, snipe, red shank, and so on. And it's not just the wild birds that are disappearing. It's the wild flowers which have gone from hillside pastures and the heather and bilberry that have gone from the upland plateaus and the invertebrates, the insects, the beetles and so on. There's no less than 68 species on the red data list. And this is the least list of species which are known nationally or by international authorities as in danger of ex extinction. I mean, there's 68 species on that list uh, in Wales on that inver of invertebrate species in Wales, and another 70 species for which there are no modern records may well have gone too. And, and even the, wooden air wood, the wooded areas are not so healthy as maybe they look from a distance. I mean, there's lots of woods around here, and I'm sure some of them are in fine condition. But there are also lots of woods which have lost the lower community, you know, the, the, that make up a, a, a balanced woodland. The, the shrub layer and, and the wildflowers below the shrub that make up the typical woodland floor, plus all the young trees that normally regenerate because of overgrazing. In fact, all that's there is the skeleton of the old, of the, the mature trees, and they will senesce and they will die, and that'll be the end of it. And what's changed basically is the farming system. At the end of the war, um, something like 40% of Welsh farming was rough grazing. About the same amount was sort of in was classified as improved grazing. That's uh, land which had been ploughed and reseeded with some of the more vigorous grasses, particularly ryegrass. And surprisingly, almost a fifth of Welsh farmland at that time was in arable cropping. And that's something we forget, but a lot of farmers on, in Wales on the, the lower ground actually grew root crops or spring oat crops 
to feed their livestock. Since they were mostly largely self-sufficient, they didn't buy a lot of food, they didn't buy a lot of fertilizers. And it was that mixed cropping pattern which contributed so much to the wildlife of, of Wales. And that's what's gone um, under the subsidy system which simply rewards farmers for the number of livestock and currently the numbers of sheep that um, they can graze on their land. They've gone largely over to grassland production and it's improved grassland production. So a lot of the rough grazing has been improved now. Uh, it's dominated by ryegrasses um, at increasingly higher levels and is subject to high inputs of nitrates so that uh, it produces a lot of, lot of lamb and it, it supports a lot of ewes but it's in wildlife terms it's led to the kind of losses that we've been hearing about. Now if we travel just a few miles to the east to the lowlands of Herefordshire um, H.J. Massingham is a writer that I expect some of you, many of you may know about. He was writing very passionately about the dangers of intensive farming. And that was back in the 40s and 50s. And he wrote a book called The Wisdom of the Fields, and in it he attacks the, the county council planners of Herefordshire for a survey they carried out onto the farming in Herefordshire in 1946. And in those days, it was... a uh, a county of small farms and smallholders. 40% were small farmers and smallholders. And the county, the planner's report was that anything less than 20 acres was uneconomic and should be eliminated. And that's 40% of the farms in Herefordshire. And Massingham was incensed by this view. I mean, he, he saw these small mixed farmers with their orchards and their few pigs and their few sheep and poultry and their few acres of arable was actually inherently very productive. And he said they weren't there because of obdurate conservatism, because the border country had neither the climate nor the physical structure for large-scale farming. But that's the kind of farming the planners wanted to see after the war. Um, they viewed the landscape they saw as backward. And as Mass Massingham put it, it offended because it was too rural. It was reprehensible because its farms were not factories. Well, as we know, um, the planners got their way in lots of Herefordshire now. We have the same kind of, uh, in many places, fairly intensive arable farming that we see further east in Britain. Um, lots of those, most of those small fam family farms have gone, and we've got intensive arable production. Um, and I'm talking, the kind of losses that that's produced are not just in wildlife terms because of reduced habitat. It's actually meant a loss, loss of people those small family farms and the culture they represented is gone, largely. And when I was writing my book, I, I met a woman who's middle-aged now, living in Lincolnshire. She was a, a, a miner's daughter from Lancashire. But she had a, a memory of a childhood going to a relative's farm, a small farm. This was near Skegness. And every holiday, she would go to this farm with her brother, and they'd help with the crops and milk the few cows that were on the farm. And they stayed in the little bungalow that her grandmother that lived in, with no electricity. This was back in the 1950s. And she told me, now that whole farm is gone. That whole little farm has become one field. And the, and the bungalow and the buildings have all been bulldozed out. All the trees have gone. And I went and had a look at it, and it is just one big field. And she told me there were five little farms in that one lane, and they've all gone, and it's just one big field. And I wonder... I know it was kind of an optimistic time in the 60s. It was a, the time when we were building these high-rise buildings. And so on. And I suppose there was a kind of optimism that we were going to see this, you know, we, we had the strong memory of food shortages in the war, and we'd had rationing, not, we'd not long gone from rationing. And I suppose there was a bold venture to kind of move into a very productive, a different kind of farming and feed people well. But somehow it seems sad that that culture should have been swept away and it's, it's, somehow to me it seemed worse than even the high-rise blocks of flats because country things, I feel, represent permanence in a way and to change them that quickly and that dramatically, not because of market demand, but essentially because of the price signals of the subsidy system seem to me very short-sighted. Anyway, this is the way we've chosen to grow our food, very much as an industrial system of production. We don't view food as result of natural cycles anymore. It's based really on a simple industrial model of inputs and outputs. 
And it's a process made technically possible by the development of, of pesticides. Crop production is now chiefly a matter of choosing the appropriate chemical cocktail and applying it at the right time. And as on the Welsh Hills, the whole process is underpinned by subsidies from the taxpayer. We've basically created a false market for goods that we don't need. And as in the hills, uh, the environmental consequences of that have been pretty bad. Uh, just this month, there was another report from the Joint Nature Conservation Committee, I expect some of you read about it, about the reasons for the decline in bird populations on farmland. And one of the chief causes for the drop in 11 species, and these include things like the skylark, the lapwing, the swallow, blackbird, song thrush, and so on, was pesticides. But I don't mean that pestic the direct poisoning effects of pesticides. That, I mean... Toxically, I mean, they're much less damaging than in the 1950s when we had the persistent organochlorines. What I'm talking about, we've, we're locked now into arable farming systems that rely so heavily on pesticides that a lot of the species that provide the food sources for those birds, the chicks particularly, are wiped out. And so that's why we're losing them, partly because we're losing the habitat, obviously, but also because... With our intensive systems of production, we don't tolerate the other species that provide the kind of ecosystem which allow the most obvious sort of results of, of um, a healthy biology, the birds, to, be, to survive. It's the indirect effect of pesticides killing off food sources like ground beetles and larva. And of course, weed, weed killers, the herbicides, I mean, they're now used so efficiently, we've killed off many of the wild plants that would have produced food for the seed eaters. An ornithologist uh, friend of mine once said to me that uh, when she heard of a, a farm of small fields, a traditional farm landscape, of which there isn't much in my part of Somerset anymore, but there probably is quite a lot here, when she heard it was sort of being threatened with development of some kind, she'd far prefer to go into... Um, a housing development than into intensive agriculture because in housing those gardens would mature and actually support quite a lot of bird life certainly more than an intensive arable system would and I think this is a very very sad I was on an organic farm just last week in Devon which we think of as a very green county this is a couple with three young children they've been farming this, this land for 12 years and they basically kept all their hedges. But all around was an intensive monoculture of, of ryegrass, really, and uh, using all the nitrates and so on. That a lot of the hedges had gone. And I have to say that a lot of those farmers are really up against it. Uh, they were mostly beef producers, and their market has collapsed. And they're very angry and upset and, and don't know which way to go. On this organic farm, um, they've had their struggles too. Things are a bit better now because all organic products are in great demand at the moment. But they've struggled and they haven't made huge amounts of money and they've had some very lean times. But the place is alive with wildlife, absolutely alive. And it's interesting that the farmers all around keep asking to come and shoot this land because it's got so many snipe and woodcock. But somehow they're unable to make the connection between the way they're managing their countryside and these rather cranky couple are doing with this land. I'd like to, um, I don't want to get too technical, but I'd like to just talk about, a little bit about the process that goes on in the ecosystem. One particular invertebrate resident of farmland, one you've probably not heard about, unless you're an entomologist, I hadn't heard about it till I went to the Game Conservancy. It's called the knotgrass beetle. Knotgrass is an annual weed of cereal crops. You certainly wouldn't find it described as one of the more attractive flowers of arable crops. The field guide calls it a straggling and usually prostrate annual, carrying up to six tiny pink flowers on small stalks. Farmers, um, the older ones anyway, wouldn't have a good word to say for it because before the days of pesticides, it's an annual weed and it's actually quite difficult to deal with before the coming of weed killers. <coughs> well... The old guys describe it as a common farmland weed. Uh, unfortunately, it's not common any longer because the hormone weed killers that began to be used on a wide scale in the 1950s and 60s dealt with it very effectively, and as a result, its population numbers have now collapsed. 
We don't know exactly when this happened. There's been very little monitoring of farmland, you know, the vertebrate, invertebrate life of our farmland. That's one of the reasons why we lost so much without really noticing. Very few scientists have been looking into the wider effects of the revolutionary changes in farming methods. I was talking, we're living, we're sort of temporarily between houses, my wife and I at the moment, we're living near the Somerset levels. And I was talking to an old farmer, retired farmer, he was in his garden just down the road from us, and he had this wonderful plot of vegetables, and I was just admiring his vegetables, and got talking to him. And he'd lived in that part of Somerset all his life, except for four years during the war when he joined the paratroopers, and he was a glider pilot, and he did three trips, including one to D-Day, and he was one of those that came back. Anyway, he came back, hung up his red beret with great pride, and then spent the next 50 years working on the small farms that he'd left. And he'd retired now, working on his garden. And he told me that he'd noticed there wasn't the wildlife anymore. And what he'd particularly noticed is there weren't any partridges anymore. And he said farms in that part of Somerset always had a couple of broods of partridges. Every farm had it. And he hadn't seen one for years. But that kind of anecdote, governments take any, don't take any note of. It doesn't actually mean anything to them. And this is sort of any... And there was no scientific research going into those kind of changes in our farmland. So it probably didn't get noticed. But to get back to this uh, not grass, no one really noticed its decline in the 50s and 60s. There was a little circumstantial evidence. Grain samples are regularly sent to the Cambridge Seed Testing Station for registration. So right through the 40s and 50s, not grass seeds were seen to be a con common contaminant of seed samples. Then suddenly, from the mid-60s, the numbers of weed seeds in the grain started to fall dramatically. Not anyone noticed at the time. Uh, the, phone, the findings have only just come to light now when interested scientists have been trawling through the old Cambridge records. But if, even if anyone had noticed, they wouldn't have been very bothered because uh, nobody was very concerned about the loss of knotgrass, a common weed. But there was one inhabitant of cereal fields for whom the decline of knotgrass was of crucial importance. It was a, a leaf beetle called Gastrophyza polygoni. And it's one of a dozens of leaf beetles commonly found in cereal fields, or at least it used to be. And there's nothing very remarkable about this particular one. It's got a reddish-yellow pronotum. That's the upper foreplate and the thorax. And it's, but it, uh, it's not a very distinguished beetle. It just happens to... Used to it just used to live in, in arable fields, and it just happened to specifically need knotgrass, the common knotgrass, to survive, to feed, to lay its eggs. If it laid its eggs on any other species, they, um, the larvae would die. So as herbicides knocked out the knotgrass, so the knotgrass beetle has gone into decline. As usual, there's no monitoring of its collapse, but there's some circumstantial evidence contained in routine reports from ADAS entomologists. And ADAS is the former development arm of, of the Ministry of Agriculture, um, now privatised. But the reports showed that the main population took place, collapse, took place in the 1960s, just as hormone weed killers were starting to be introduced. Well, what does it matter? The knotgrass beetle has now virtually disappeared from many of the arable fields in southern England. Well, it matters to partridges, for a start. The larvae of the, the beetle, this particular beetle, made up part of the diet of partridge chicks. So the reason my countryman friend in Somerset had noticed there weren't any partridges is because we knocked out the weeds with herbicides, and we in, in that way we eliminate the, the insects, the um, invertebrates that live on them. And the knotgrass beetle is only one of several dozen related species, many, if not most of which, are entirely dependent on one or two plants of arable ecosystems. The science has never done this. We don't know what effect cereal growers have had in spraying their herbicides for the last 20 or 30 years because we don't know what the base level, we don't, basically we don't know what's gone in the ecosystem. But what we're seeing now, which is the steep decline in, in bird life, is a result of these changes that are taking place. Uh, I'd like to just tell you a little wartime story. It's one that hasn't had a lot of publicity. It's about um, a secret chemical weapon that was developed in the last war against Hitler's armies in, in great secret. In conditions of security to match those of Barnes Wallace's bouncing bomb, there were special development teams were sent out to 300 farm trial sites all over Britain. The operation had been authorized by the chief scientists of the Ministry of Agriculture. 
Out in the field, it was supervised by the war ags. These were the special war agriculture executive committees, which had sweeping powers to dictate to farmers how they should farm their land. Because this, this new chemical they were trying out wasn't a chemical weapon of war, but it was a weapon to use on the home front. And it was called, I'll try and say this, 4-chloro-2-methylphenoxyacetic acid. Later, it was shortened to MCPA. And when it, dusted, when it was dusted on annual weeds, it caused them to, to twist up and die. And it was actually the first hormone weed killer. And these secret wartime trials were the result of close collaboration between the chemical company ICI and the government. Early in the war, ICI's chief agricultural advisor was someone called Sir William Gavin, and he was made, during the war, chief agricultural advisor to the Ministry of Agriculture. Though obviously there was a great wartime need to maximise food production, this was an early example of public money being used to develop a new system of farming. It was one of the people involved in this project later described it as a great agricultural adventure. And so it was, I'm sure. And, but unfortunately, that cooperation between the ministry, the civil servants, and the chemical industry didn't end with the war. It's continued um, long after the war. Quite soon after the war ended, ICI started marketing their their new products is methoxone. And the Labour government brought in all the subsidies which enabled farmers to start buying these products. In fact, 1947, the year of the Great Agriculture Act, which introduced the subsidies, ICI started working on the development of a cheap prototype boom sprayer. By the following year, they were carrying out field trials of a new liquid formulation. And before long, this new, the new hormone weed killers were being used almost on every cereal crop in the land. And all this, of course, was an awful long time ago, but it represents a, a collaboration between uh, the civil servants of math, the chemical industry, and, how shall I say, the, maybe the bigger farmers who, you know, the people probably, the, the war ags, the ag were chiefly made up of farmers from the NFU and the CLA. And it's this triumvirate of working together to increase food supplies which continued after the war. But it also kind of ingrained a culture of collaboration between those three groups, the civil servants, math, the chemical industry, and the farmers who were driving the system that really laid the foundations of the culture, the production culture that we're seeing the effects of in, in the loss of our, our bird life today. And of course, the subsidy system that was put in place in 1947 is, is still with us. Uh, in direct, we, we pay farmers in production subsidies something like three billion pounds a year, but it has been calculated by uh, Professor Patrick Minford that in fact the common agricultural policy costs us a lot more than that. Um, the cost to consumers, in addition to this three million or three and a half million paid by taxpayers, the cost to consumers is put at, he puts at six and a half million. So the cost of EU membership to us is something like £10 billion a year. Well, you know, lots of money is unwisely spent, and I don't, you know, it's probably no bad thing that some of this money should, should end up with farmers. But I think the tragedy is that for a start, a lot of it doesn't end up with farmers. It ends up with the chemical companies and the land agents because it becomes capitalised into the land price and jacks up the land price. Also, a lot of this money that is supposed to help farmers doesn't help the mass of small family farmers. It actually is concentrated in the hands of the big-scale producers and increasingly of farming companies that farm on behalf of family farms. And the worst thing is, it's leading, contributing to the degradation of our countryside and the loss of our wildlife. If we could go back to the, the, hill, the Welsh hills that I started with, where the subsistence sheep are slowly destroying our head of moorland, there was a study carried out last year on uh, a typical sheep farm in the Lake District. It focused on a, a typical flock of Hardwick sheep in a typical hill farm in, in central, the cent central Lakeland. And its area of very poor grazing, extreme weather, and considerable tourist appeal. Anyway, on this typical farm of Hardwick sheep, the sheep flock was the most important enterprise. Now, while the Herdwick sheep is extremely well adapted to a harsh climate, it's not particularly prolific, productive. Only two lambs are weaned for every three ewes put to the ram. 
while a fourth shearling ewe has to be kept as a flock replacement. This means that the annual crop for four adult ewes amounts to just two lambs reared. Now, assuming there are equal numbers of males and females, the female gimmer is retained as a future replacement, while the weather lamb is sold to the store trade or onto the European market. The sale value of the lamb is put at £25, but it will have cost us taxpayers £130 in subsidies to keep the, the ewes up there. So for the typical Lakeland flock of a thousand years, the charge on the public purse amounts to £30,000 to produce a crop of 250 lambs plus a few old draft ewes with little value. At the same time, the density of those sheep is doing incalculable damage to the moorland ecosystem. Wouldn't we be better actually paying that farmer a salary of £30,000 and say, farm in your traditional way? But we make his survival dependent on environmental destruction. That's what our subsidy system is doing. We could tell a similar story for those Herefordshire arable farms. We pay the farmers subsidies which effectively keep them locked into a chemically dependent way of farming. To get the arable area payments, that's 109 pounds an acre for cereals, 172 an acre for oilseed rape, 210 an acre for linseed, 157 an acre for field beans, plus the infamous set-aside, they have first to register their land as arable. They cannot now practice sensible mixed farming with both arable and livestock rotating around the same land. On light soils in particular, this would have a no make an enormous contribution to raising the wildlife status of that land. Instead, they're locked into this intensive, continuous arable production, which virtually obliges them to rely on agrochemicals and chemical fertilizers to keep up soil fertility and control disease. At the same time, we're paying farmers over £200 million a year for set-aside to take land out of production. While we continue to run our farms in such an irrational way, we'll continue to lose our wildlife. Do we have any alternative to this? Well, some people think not. Some people think that with the burgeoning world population, we may have to put up with the slow degradation of our landscape because it's the only way we're going to feed the population explosion of Asia and, and China and so on. This is the usual justification for intensive agriculture, and yet uh, Europe's problem for the last 20 years has been overproduction. And I was listening to farming today this morning, and at the latest Council of Farm Ministers meeting, the report they're getting from the Commission is they're anticipating another surplus of 60 million tonnes of, of wheat by... 2005. So they're actually thinking about more policies to deal with these anticipated surpluses. Surely now is the time to try out a farming system that is sustainable and which delivers clean food and a more diverse countryside. The fact is organic farming has the potential to be highly productive, but while we continue to shower public money on big-scale industrial farmers, the organic sector will be forever kept at a disadvantage. In his book, The Wisdom of the Fields, Massingham tells of a wartime visit to a friend's farm in West Somerset. He met a number of what he called peasants, though for Massingham this wasn't a term of abuse, this was the highest accolade. These peasants farmed small acreage on the foothills of the two great ranges, the Quantocks and the Brendans. Massingham called this the Hillock and Dingle country. And he, he speaks of a, a Mr. Rowe and his wife, he doesn't identify them any further. But he tells us on little more than four acres of steeply sloping land, this couple grew enough food to feed a small hamlet, all without chemicals, and I would add, largely without subsidies. Apparently their crops in 1944 included 120 pounds of strawberry, early and main crop potatoes, orchard fruits, plus, as Massingham writes, greater diversity of vegetables than many grow on 100 times that acreage. In addition, there were enough grass and fodder crops to support a pony, 130 chickens, six ewes and a lamb, a sow with a litter of eight and 30 hives of bees. Now, I wouldn't, I'm not suggesting that we turn over our 3,000-acre farms to four-acre smallholdings, but to argue that organic farming is inherently unproductive is clearly nonsense. Labour-intensive, it certainly is. If we produced our food organically, we'd need, say, 30% more labour on our farms. But is that a high price to pay when we're, we're currently spending £10 billion a year to support agriculture. I mean, the cost of the extra labour for farming organically, I suggest, would be much less than that. In addition, we'd be getting food that wasn't contaminated with pesticide residues, 
Water supplies and rivers that weren't polluted by nitrates and pesticides, and of course we'd be getting the kind of wildlife that the older ones amongst us remember from the countryside. Not long after the book came out, I received a letter from a woman who lived in that same Hillock and Dingle country, and she, she told me that in the 20 years she'd been living in this house overlooking the Quantox, she'd sadly noticed a decline or the silencing of the dawn chorus, as she called it. I don't know whether that made her an insomniac, but she's obviously used to listening to it over 20 years. And she was very saddened by that, and she speaks, she spoke quite movingly, actually, about the watching those, the inheritors of those small farms that Massingham was writing about shortly after the war, who were sort of farming five or six hundred acres with one, perhaps two people, and a large crop sprayer. So where do we go from here? But we could, I'd suggest we could make a start by dismantling the production subsidies we've had in place for the past 50 years. As I mentioned when I came, this, is, this was no more than the official policy of the last Conservative government. Not that uh, John Major ever made any real attempt to achieve it, because, uh, as he said, there's no will to do it in the rest of the EU. And I heard that again on Farming, on farming Today this morning, that um, Jack Cunningham's suggestion that we have a dramatic reform of the CAP met with a very chilly response from the other, some of the other uh, members of the EU. So um, it looks as though it's going to be quite hard to shift. And one thing's for sure, the farming lobby is never going to press for it. Yet these production subsidies, these subsidies on every acre of wheat and every sheep on the hillside, that keep British farming quite at a quite needless level of intensification. It's as if the countryside is being maintained on a permanent war footing, as if 50 years after the end of the war, we've still got U-boats in the channel. It's, there's no economic case for maintaining subsidies, and not as if we're going to go hungry without the subsidies in place. Instead, we would pay the real price of food, and what we don't want, we don't buy. The way it is now, the way it has been since we joined the EU in 1973, we go on buying this food whether we want it or not. We used to dump it, the surpluses, by selling them off cheap to the Russians or wrecking the economies of developing countries with our surpluses. But following the GATT agreement, we can't do that, so we've introduced, introduced bizarre measures like set-aside and area payments and so on. What they do is continue the loss of natural habitat, induce farmers to apply more pesticides than otherwise would, Reducing the subsidies would have an immediate beneficial effect on the quality of the wildlife in our countryside. And there's one nation that's um, actually done that. The New Zealand government decided they run subsidies were unsustainable and in 1984 announced a programme to end them. By 1990, public support to farming had stopped altogether. And one of the first results was a sub substantial fall in land prices. The price of land in New Zealand now reflects the market value of its output rather than the capitalised value of public support. And this means that new farmers, young, aspiring young farmers, have a, a better opportunity of getting started. At the same time, the reforms brought immediate and lasting benefits for the countryside. Fewer fertilisers and pesticides, less fossil fuels to grow the farm crops. Overall, there's been uh, less specialisation in New Zealand agriculture with a much reduced area of monoculture. The landscape is more attractive with a greater diversity of wildlife. Sheep numbers have fallen dramatically from 70 million to 46 million, reducing the overgrazing of hill areas. With the shackle of subsidies removed, the New Zealand countryside is beginning to live again. Just one more thing that I would suggest to go along with that would be to reduce our dependence on agrochemicals. As I've said, if we, reduce, we stop the, or phase out the production subsidies, this will happen anyway. But the other side of this policy, if you like, is actually to apply the producer pays principle, which we've never really done with intensive farming. We as a society pay the cost of taking pesticide residues out of our drinking water, for example. We pay the cost of cleaning up um, water supplies that have too high levels of nitrates and so on. Um, why not charge this on the users of the chemicals by putting a tax 
on pesticides and on nitrate fertilizers. It's artificial fertilizer. Also, we could put um, an element in the tax to account for the, the environmental damage it's doing. I mean, it's nitrogen fertilizers has led to the loss of our wildflower meadows. They've virtually all gone now. So it seems to me not unreasonable that the users of nitrogen fertilizers should pay some element of tax to account for really um, impoverishing all our lives to a small extent. This rather radical idea is that the polluter pays principle should apply to farming has already been applied for some time in another EU member country. As far back as 1986, the Danes embarked on a 10-year program to cut pesticide use by half. They had the full backing of their own farmers in doing it. Um, the more environmental damaging the chemical, the higher the tax. So for fungicides, it was 13%, but for insecticides, it was 27%. Though this, already this measure has halved pesticide use ahead of target, and they've now started on a new program to reduce it further. Finally, uh, if I've left you all feeling gloomy about the future of our, our countryside, um, I really don't mean to. I actually feel very optimistic about our wildlife because I, I sense that the world is now beginning to change. And I think we're, we're seeing a lot of the main direction of our farming as really needing to be questioned. And I think people generally are taking more, certainly since BSE, people are taking more notice of the kind of foods they eat. And that inevitably makes them think about the way those foods are produced. I feel on a European basis we've got the natural resources to have everything we want. Uh, good, wholesome, uncontaminated food. A thriving rural community, including family farms making good incomes. Plus a diverse and abundant wild, uh, wildlife. All right, so we can't recreate many of the wonderful ecosystems we've lost, like the flower-rich chalk grassland, for example. But there's a great deal we can get back. The only obstacle is, is a worn-out farming culture that was designed for wartime Britain and not for Britain on the verge of the millennium. And we lack a political will to change it. Um, and I hope, hope we'll find that will soon. Thank you very much. I don't know if anyone, anyone wants to ask a question or argue with me. Um, yes, yes. Do you think your modest proposal for sustainable agriculture has a realistic future when the forces that are ranked against it um, remain so central to both government policy and to EU policy. Secondly, do you think there is a future for uh, policies uh, linked to protection for the environment? Um, <clears throat> yes, I, I hesitate to answer your first question because I feel, in a sense, the forces which are driving us this way in agriculture all, are almost beyond government level, almost beyond European level. I feel uh, it's this, this global economy that we're hearing about, it's really the power of international capitalism, which is almost imposing this attitude, this culture, seeming to make this inevitable, even for governments. Governments almost don't seem to be able to withstand it. However backward and, and in many ways irrational the CAP, um, at its best, it's an attempt to kind of keep family farms in business. I, I've just argued it's having the opposite effect in Britain, and in many ways it has. But it was inspired to do that, and it is, in a way, trying to turn back this tide of the global economy. Um, I believe that uh, if there's a, a will amongst people to, to take control back, certainly of the food system, we can do that. And, but it's it's about the way we all think about food, whether we see it as just a processed, manufactured raw material that is being produced by an international food company who could be sourcing the raw materials for that anywhere in the world, 
or whether we actually do get back to the, the best kind of food, which is locally produced food that hasn't been mucked about with. I don't think that quite answered your question. I think there is a way of getting back, but it, it'll demand a change of all of us in our attitude. So what was the second part? Um, yes, I think there is, as long as uh, they're popular, as long as people, as long as the electorate is behind them. I think there's enormous power in, in people wanting the right kind of countryside, the right, right kind of food. And one of the things I've been trying to say, I feel in a way people or the citizens of this country have almost been excluded from... The, the direction that agriculture's taken. It's, it's gone, it's been directed by these, these great forces of capitalism, competitiveness, those kind of economic things. And we as a population, we've, we've, we've let it happen. And I think we need to take control of it through our elected representatives. So, I mean, I don't point up um, BSE as a one, you know, the, the collapse of the beef market is a wonderful example of anything, but it, just it did show that consumers have a lot of power if they exercise it. I mean, what saddens me is that um, you know it only took the supermarkets to axe the prices of meat, and they cleared the shelves again. But if that power were harnessed to actually having the right kind of meat from well-produced beef produced locally from family farms, I think that that would be a, an unstoppable power. Um, yes. Oh, sorry. Can you speak into the microphone? <laughs> well, I just wondered what you would think of um, the comment I want to make. Uh, I came up here nine years ago, and my husband and I used to roam the Beggins, which are moors, about yeah. a mile and a half out from here, and we had curlews circling our heads. Now, I hadn't seen a curlew for at least four years. Now, the second point is, um, friends of mine in the south tell me that the birds in their gardens have disappeared. And these are town people. Yeah. I still have birds in my garden. Yeah. And the third point is, I'm wondering what you think about the protection of the magpie and the increase, as it seems to me, of rooks and crows. Uh, none of those birds, I don't think, are friends of the smaller creatures. I wondered if there's an approach from that end, which has not been looked at. I believe the common market protects the magpie. I, I'm not an expert on how protective the magpie is. I mean, there's loads of magpies about, and I mean, they obviously do a huge amount of damage to garden birds. I know these overgrazed uplands, um, someone from the RSPB was telling me where there are lots of crows. And, I mean, their numbers are very high. And he suggested to me that's be partly because there's lots of carcasses about because there are so, so many sheep in the uplands now that... Uh, carrion crow is one of the, the species it's one of the few species which is actually doing well from this intensive grazing of the uplands in your garden no, no. well um well a lot of the the birds on on this joint nature conservation list included things like the song thrush i don't know i mean that it's changes in agriculture which has affected those numbers, for example. Well, um, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know the answer to that. I'm sorry. Sorry. Um, yes, gentlemen there. Um, Hello. You've passed comment on. Um, production subsidies, but you've made no comment on things like tier Cummins, stewardship, ESA payments, farm woodland schemes, right. and then other European schemes under 5B and things like that, which are doing supporting rural populations and rural economies without having the fairly detrimental effects that some of the New Zealand uh, models uh, would have. Absolutely. Um, I mean, the farm I went on today, which is not far away, I mean, I saw some examples of um, payments under ESA scheme there, and it's a great farm, and I think they're good schemes. But in a sense, 
they're working against, and I'm all for, I mean, that's, I really feel that's a good reason why we as taxpayers, that's something worth supporting. We expect that kind of, if we want that kind of public good, if you like, from farmers, that's worth paying for. The trouble is we are paying so much in the production subsidies at the moment that we're having to counterbalance that with all these schemes to, to really induce farmers not to take up the production subsidies but to spare a little habitat or a manager habitat in a particular way here. So what I'm saying is I'm all for that. I think that's worth and should be supported by the taxpayer. But it's expensive while we have these unnecessary production subsidies in place. So I think, yes, they could be greatly expanded, but they'll be a lot cheaper to run if we're not having to support a false market for the agricultural goods. I come from Lincolnshire and I often wonder how you would sort out some of the vast tracts of industrial farming around there because I think this is probably where the real trouble lies, not in farms around here. Um, what sort of schemes would you have? I mean, I know a lot of them now are doing things like golf courses yeah. and this sort of thing. I don't know yeah. what sort of schemes you would ask those people to, to do. Well, I don't think golf courses are an answer because I can think golf courses I wouldn't have think were particularly beneficial for wildlife, obviously depending how they manage how they're managed and whether they have bits of ecosystem in them. But if we're talking about farming, um, I think the answer is to get more mixed farming there, to get more livestock back to East Anglia and to do it all on a smaller scale. Um, wildlife seems to benefit from having a mosaic, different crops uh, and fertility definitely needs livestock. I mean, one of the reasons that farmers in that part of the world are so dependent on artificial fertilizers is because there's no animals there. And there have been in the past. I mean, there was quite a big dairy industry in parts of Norfolk, for example, but it's virtually all gone now. The separation of arable farming from livestock farming is very, very damaging. So, you know, off the cuff, I'd say more mixed farming in Lincolnshire. Areas of uh, well, the wheat fields for start and linseed. Yeah, well, I mean, any acres vast and acres of yeah, there. any vast area is bad. I mean, there are. I was reading about a vast area of carrots and some, something. In, I read something in Farmers Weekly this week. This firm has just brought the receivers in, but there was 800 acres of carrots. They were the sort of major carrot producers, presumably in a very industrial way for Tesco's or Safeways or somebody, probably selling at 10 pence a pound and actually doing nothing for the local economy, nothing for the local society. Just so mixed, mixed farming is the answer. Yes? Just, oh, right. <laughs> is this live? Yes, yeah. it is. Yeah. Um, there's some that see the danger to the countryside less as the loss of lapwings than as the loss of people, the fact that we don't have distinctive rural ways of life, of uh, uh, cohesive uh, rural fabric in the villages, no succession of generation after generation, and the likes of the Rural, rural Development Commission um, seek to bring new forms of employment, um, tourism, small industry to villages, are trying to bring affordable housing to villages and so on. Um, do you condemn this, are, are the Rural Development Commission merely taking as accepted uh, the agricultural uh, enormity of uh, the CAP? And don't they have a point in that there's probably not enough people who would like traditional farming as a valid lifestyle? Well, I mean, it's my impression there are um, a lot of people that would go farming if they thought they had an opportunity to do it. I'm all for that kind of um, social development, but um, uh, agriculture could be contributing a lot more. I mean, again on Farming Today this morning, there's a report come out from somebody that uh, represents, I didn't, I was only half asleep, but represents the food industry, both the retailers, the big retailers and the manufacturers. And they were saying agriculture needs to rationalise like the food industry has. 
And we, at 130,000 farmers, which they said, there's too many farmers, and they must have a clear-out. That's what they were saying. Well, I mean, what kind of countryside are we going to have if we... And somebody, from, I, think, I hope I'm not denigrating the NFU again, but somebody saying, somebody from that side commented, well, we're rationalising as fast as we can. You know, that's the kind of process of takeovers and fa company farming that's doing it. So there's this great impetus to do it. I'd like to see the countryside opened out to many more working people. So anything that brings jobs in the countryside is good. Our mistake was thinking that intensive agriculture brings jobs to the countryside. It doesn't. It destroys jobs. And as a defence for subsidies, that's erroneous. And the money should be going into these other areas, I agree. But it would be even better if we didn't pursue that kind of agriculture, because we'd have even more jobs. <laughs> sorry. All right, I'll continue. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, these chickens live in conditions like Book and Bowls and Auschwitz, as we all know. Now, the moment anyone mentions, for example, fox hunting in this country, you can have the whole press and media yeah. up in arms about fox hunting. And yet they couldn't get a plan provided no. they get their McDonald's McNuggets. Yeah. And I think you're going completely opposite way in your argument. I think that the outrage Well, <laughs> I, d I don't know if I'm, I'm not on the opposite side to you, am I? <laughs> I mean, I totally agree with you. Well, how do you change people? Yes, I agree. Right, I'll give you one yeah. example. Yeah. All right. The audience for one second. I happen to enjoy pistol shooting yeah. for 40 years. The farming industry, the meat business, has killed 35, 40 people over the last 30 months. Their penalty for killing all those people has been a three billion pound injection of public funds into them for killing people in the farming industry. The shooters, I've never committed a criminal act no. in my life. I lose my gun. Now, the public support me losing my gun because of public perception. And that's what I'm saying to you. You are not attacking the essence of what your arguments are. I just... Uh, thanks, thanks for that. I, <laughs> I, I heard... I listened to early morning farming programs again. Last Saturday, or was it the Saturday before, they were interviewing a, fa a farming family near Birmingham. And it was run by the Sun now. Uh, but the, the father had said he went into battery hens in the 1960s and he said he made a lot of money from it. Now, when my book came out, I had a letter from uh, a lady in Somerset who'd grown up on a farm in Somerset in the 30s. And she said, I agree with you about some things but disagree about others. And things were very hard in the 30s when you had a farm. And she sent me a copy, a photocopy of her mother's cash book from this little farm in Somerset. And one of the main sources of income in 1936 was selling a dozen eggs in the village. And it kept coming up. And the eggs were selling. Farmers could sell, get a lot of money for eggs in the 1930s, I discovered. I forget what the figure is. And it, every family farm pretty well had a, a poultry enterprise selling locally. Now, overnight, virtually in the 1960s, we had industrial-scale chicken production. And suddenly, an income earner for farms was basically lost. We had an industry, a chicken industry, and it ceased to be a farming enterprise. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I, I think, that is, you know, that's not the way to produce food. It's not farming to me. So, uh, let's just, all right, can we come to you now? Is this on? Yeah. yeah. Can, I, can I get back to this point about the, uh, you know, what followed on from the war? Because we had the, uh, the, the guts of our timber industry taken out, and what followed on... Uh, from after the First World War was the Forestry Commission and then uh, the, the estates <coughs> collapsed and what is being argued now is that the, uh, we're coming full circle and uh, the ideal is to go back to the estate system and that some of the farms are doing this 
that they are going back to managing small woods for the production of their fencing material. Yeah. And that uh, mm -hmm. instead of doing what we had done, which was to plant some of our small woods with conifers, which has turned out to be a waste of time, economically a waste of time, ecologically a waste of time, yeah. uh, that this uh, estate system is both ecologically, economically, and socially a good way of management is what we should be doing yeah. and is where we should be putting the money. Yeah. And this is proving to be the case. Uh, have you gone into that in your book? I haven't, no. Maybe oh. I should have done. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it sounds a good idea to me. <laughs> I have only a small holding, um, not very far from here, in the Welsh Hills. And I am managing this... Sorry. Oh. Can you hear me now? Yes. Right. Um, I, I have a small holding in the Welsh Hills, not very far from here. And I am in the environmentally sensitive area scheme, which pays me money now um, to, and I, I have not put any fertilizer down. It's done um, organically and in an environmentally sensitive way. And I have not put any fertilizer down since 1990. This has resulted in the fields that I purchased becoming old hay meadow status. And I have all the old flowers growing in the hay fields. I have wetland woodland areas where I have um, some quite special plants that, have, that the seed bank was in the ground for perhaps 30, 40 years and they've True. come through again. Mm. I have a tremendous uh, range of birds, um, nesting uh, flowers, uh, hedgehogs, frogs, toads, everything you can imagine. And I believe that every person in this room could make their contribution to achieve, even if they only have half an acre, I think each one of us can make our input uh, in our area to improve things. I have done this myself, and as, as a result of the payments, it has enabled me to employ um, local contractors, local people, with the money that I have been paid for this. So I just want to make I, a I positive statement, because I, I believe things can get better. That's great. Thank you very much. Let's, let's change the political system as well. Mm. Ian. <laughs> to the audience about three facts. First of all, the average size of the farm in the UK is about 200 acres, which isn't very big. There was a statistic done about 1990 which showed that 40% of the farms in the UK were mixed, livestock and arable. And I think the quote you made from New Zealand, and I do quite know quite a lot about New Zealand, specialist agriculture in New Zealand is about a, the second specialist to the growing of arable crops or horticultural crops in the Salinas Valley in California. It is very specialist, extraordinary specialist. I think if you found a mixed farm in New Zealand, you'd find the only one. Thank you. <coughs> oh, one more question, I'm afraid. Oh, right. Chap up there. Brian, up the, up the back there. You, you seem to put forward this suggestion that if you got rid of subsidies, that would be the end of all farming ills. And I would argue that it wouldn't be. And if you got rid of all subsidies, what you would have would be a great polarisation of agriculture. And all your grade one land now would be farmed even more intensively than it is now because it would have to be because sooner or later we're going to have to trade without subsidies on world markets. If you took away subsidies like you're suggesting, all the marginal hill farms certainly around here, um, I'm a farmer myself, I've got a 100 acre hill farm, we would be completely and utterly non-viable. The um, follow up the gentleman's suggestion over there about the agri-environment schemes, there is so much money going into mainstream agriculture and so little going into the agri-environment schemes, wouldn't you be better to argue that transfer some of that money from mainstream agriculture into the agri-environment schemes and also start up some form of cross-compliance so as to encourage farmers to take up the agri-environment schemes? But don't take away the subsidies altogether because you won't get what you're talking about, I don't think. 
No, you're probably, you're possibly right there. Um, I mean, I agree with you that the money should come out of production and go into the other side. And we're talking about phasing. I mean, it's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen next year. I mean, I'm talking about what we as taxpayers should be spending our money on. And I've, I agree with you, supporting farmers to take care of the environment is worth doing, but supporting farmers to produce food is not worth doing because we have market signals that do that more effectively. Market signals don't work for those environmental goods that you're talking about, so of course the community has to come in and pay for those. But at the moment they're made unnecessarily expensive because of the unnecessary production subsidies that they're fighting against. You look as though you want some more. <laughs> I just keep going back to the thing that if you took away the subsidies, particularly on this grade one land, it would become more intensive. Well, I, I agree with you, some farms would be far more intensively. And this is, William Watergrave, when he was Minister of Agriculture, as you know, he set up this, this think tank of learned people. And one of the things from their conclusion was that if we took away subsidies, some land would be far more intensively, but overall there would be a move to extensification. So over the country as a whole, there would be less fertilisers, less chemical inputs. So the net result to wildlife would be better. They also concluded it would open up a lot more opportunities for new entrants in the industry. But I, I agree with you, the better land would be into this global food economy. I, the, the rest of the land, I think, would be farmed extensively. And I think people would... I, I'd have to say, I mean, we're, we're in a small island with 55 million people. And if farmers can't find markets for producing food for that number of people on their own shores, then they're not... They, they just need to get on with the job. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Thank you very much.